welcome to Systematically, your weekly theology podcast. I'm John Heap speaking to you from a, a really cold, gray and, gray, uh, and gray and rainy. I'm also a little hungover, I'll be honest. Uh, Austin, Texas, that's where I am. On foot or on horseback, I know not. I'm also here with Ryan Hemmer. Hey, Ryan. Hey, John. And it's Robin even colder Ryan. in Minneapolis. Yeah, how cold is it in Minneapolis? I'll tell you how cold it is, John. Uh, how it cold is, is it? As we record, negative uh, 25 with the wind chill and about negative eh, 13, just standard air temperature. Now, Robin, those are Fahrenheit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's funny, but we know how those work. I'm not going to start this argument again. <laughs> not, don't start that again. Hey, Robin, how are you? I'm well. It's not cold in Toronto. Um, yeah. But uh, it is gray because it's always gray and miserable here, except for a couple days where it's like minus 20 and sunny. And then everyone just complains about the cold instead of enjoying the sun. It's very sad. Miserable Canadians. Clearly not from the Midwest or Western (laughs) or like the middle of Canada or actually really anywhere else. Toronto is like its own thing. Terranolius. Yeah. And also we have a very special guest today. We have Grant. Kaplan. Hi, Grant. Hello, everyone. Great to be with you. Yeah, glad to have you. Um, We are going to uh, talk about Grant's myriad uh, interests in a moment. Um, First, a a little point of business, just a reminder. Sorry, aren't his married interests private, John? Ha ha. Hilarious. (laughs) I I don't even even know how to (laughs) proceed from there. Anyway, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash systematically. If you want to help support the show, um, we're still a little in the red each month for covering hosting costs and the like, um, but we're getting close. So if you would be happy to donate even as little as a dollar a month, uh, you'd help make the show more sustainable for us uh, miserable, uh, miserable podcast hosts. All right, Grant. We haven't trotted them out in a while, but uh, we have guest questions. Uh, just a little get to know you thing before we get down to the theology uh, stuff. So I'm going to start with Robin. Hey, Robin, you have a guest question. I do. It seems unimaginable. Um, but uh, I just want to know, like, have you ever made a fashion choice that you regret? It can be a one-off or like kind of an ongoing trend that you really got into for a while and in retrospect was a, a, a bad idea. I bought a crop top on accident about 10 years ago. (laughs) I didn't realize how cropped it was. (laughs) It's hard to imagine anyone's ever going to have a better answer to that question. (laughs) Under what circumstances? Like in the store? I mean, on like if you were like. We were in a secondhand clothing store. And uh, I liked the way it looked and, you know, I just kind of like put it on and maybe I had a t-shirt underneath or something. And I just didn't quite realize until I put it on with no t-shirt underneath that um, there was belly showing and absolutely nobody wanted to see that. A a bare midriff for you. (laughs) That's tremendous. Man alive. Uh, All right, (laughs) Ryan, what's your guest question? Well, I mean, I I feel like we we really know who Grant is and what he's about now, but uh, I don't know, you know, Grant, what kind of things you're into in the kitchen, but uh, have you ever, you know, really messed something up bad while cooking or baking that uh, has has stayed with you either as a, a, a red badge of courage or as a a wound that just won't heal. Or a reason you're not allowed in the kitchen. Well, that too. Yeah, I mean, more often than not, something really bad happens when I cook. So it's, it's almost like the regularity of it means that I don't have like a, a great example. I, I like to, uh, I have this great quesadilla um, method of, you know, putting not just cheese, but different kinds of vegetables and everything on the quesadilla, but it had to be cooked at basically like almost broiled, like a 500 degree temperature. (laughs) 
And that was probably unnecessary, but it's how I learned it from one college friend to another. And this is often just seen as a, um, the very method itself is a, is a reason why um, I, I am a danger to myself and everyone in the household when I, when I cook. But I was making pancakes and bacon for everyone two hours ago. So hey. there, there are certain well, things. There you go. Uh, that's a kind of culinary example of my, my general gripe about what we do with undergraduate education, where we say, go, become an adult. And then we send our young people into institutions where they have interaction with almost no adults. And so they do, (laughs) just like, here's a thing I did once. This is probably how it's done. Just pooling ignorance. This is my, this is my backup, uh, career plan is to open like a 21st century finishing school. Yeah. Oh yeah. And like. You know, it's like academy. Yeah. And like I teach like here's how to like do laundry and cook and like do your books and like, you know, set up like a life schedule, you know, that sort of thing. And also obviously dancing and embroidery because naturally. 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 Okay. Uh last guest question, Grant. What is your favorite bar in the world? Um it's a very tough question. Not a big drinker, but I've been to a lot of bars, and <clears throat> I was I, <laughs> I was going to say that hotel room at the CTSA, <laughs> oh. and I tried Store to color. find your number. Oh yeah, <laughs> and I I was going through like texts from June, and there was some number that I didn't have in there, and then. All it was was like room 509 or something. And then I was like, is this heaps? And it was actually Ginny Martin. <laughs> I was like, oh, sorry. Hey, how's it going? I have your number. Um, and uh, yeah, and then um, I was thinking like, wow, it would be really bad if someone was randomly scrolling through my, my, my text messages and realizing I was like texting them a hotel room number <laughs> to, to a woman and uh and uh yeah so um but my favorite bar would probably be the columns hotel in new orleans um mm-hmm. they have a legendary bar there um and many many good nights were spent there um and it's right on st charles street in the uptown neighborhood so we had an after party there, I think, the, um, the day before our, our wedding. So um, the Columns Hotel in New Orleans, if you go to New Orleans, you sit on the porch, you get a mint julep. It's, it's great. That sounds awesome. Man. Was that a, uh, were y'all in New Orleans, like living there when you got married there? Was it destination wedding? How is it that you came to? It was semi-destination. So I taught at Loyola New Orleans for four oh, years. Okay. And um, yeah, and, uh, and that bar was... Um, basically walking distance from where I lived. And, uh, yeah. And so we, uh, we ended up getting married in, in New Orleans, which was basically, uh, Emily's family is from Mobile, Alabama. So it's like a two hour drive. So not really a destination, you know? Right. Uh, and then, um, my family is from Monterey. And so there was no place for us to get married where people didn't have to travel. And at the time there was no point of doing it in St. Louis in the sense of making it more convenient to people because more right. people come to the wedding, not from St. Louis and from St. Louis. So yeah. New Orleans, it was. Very nice. Well, well, good times. Um, <clears throat> okay. So Grant, I, uh, we know you from Lonergan circles, um, but you have, as I said earlier, myriad interests, Robin. Uh, that range uh, through Lonergan and beyond. Um, so we were hoping maybe we could just proceed kind of biographically today. Uh, h- how did you how did you find your way into this uh, awful pr- profession that we're all in? Um, and what uh, you know? So wh- where did your where did your interest and engagement with theology start? Um, <clears throat> I would say it started um, in high school. And I um, was um, um, not particularly religious in high school, but my closest friend was the son of a Presbyterian minister. 
And so I would actually go to the Presbyterian youth group, even though I'm a cradle Catholic, and to their camps. And people talked a lot about C.S. Lewis. Um, so I um, read C.S. Lewis in high school. Um, I went to a pretty secular school. Um, so, you know, I had interests, but I didn't think about studying theology. And of the schools that I applied to go study at, Boston College was the only Catholic school. And mm. so it wasn't like a plan to go to a Catholic school, but that's where I ended up going. And then I took courses um, in, you know, the, the sort of core courses that every student would take there. And most of the people in the class, this would have been like 1992, went to Catholic high school or something like that, a parochial school. And so they, they were a little bit bored of things, whereas I was like, oh my gosh, this is great. This is what I want to talk about. So I would say that's when um, I started to realize, you know, a love for this field. Awesome. Okay. Sorry, uh, I was just wondering, as someone, you know, shamelessly uh, educated in the secular university system um, for the beginning of my program, is that normal? Like if you go to Boston College and you take an undergrad in whatever that you have to do like certain like core theological or Bible courses? Yes. Um, so two philosophy courses, two theology courses was the core when I went through. Okay. And so the core was pretty big and it was not abnormal or shameful to be undeclared. So I was undeclared as a freshman and took almost entirely core classes by all of my freshman year. And now some people would spread out the core a little bit more, but um, now I think at least where I teach, I imagine at a lot of universities, it's much more pressure on starting the major courses earlier and um, uh, sort of having your career sort of plotted out um, earlier. So a lot of times my students will like say, this is the only humanities class they're, they're taking, even though they're a first year student. And I find it kind of odd, but yeah. So for me, it was extremely beneficial to take those classes. And then um, there was not a lot of um, oversight in terms of the order of what you did. And so I actually just, read like an intro to philosophy book over the summer, like the history of philosophy or something. And then talked my way into like a Heidegger seminar as a sophomore, <laughs> never taking a philosophy class. Do you remember who taught that? The Heidegger project with um, the guy who just taught the Heidegger project. Oh, and, really? uh, it sounded like a bad film or something. But, um, <laughs> yeah. And we only made it like halfway through being in time, but um, there was um, one guy in there ended up in my PhD program, like, you know, eight years later or something. Another guy was, uh, he's, we looked him up recently and he's a philosophy professor. So um yeah, but the, the Heidegger project. Um, uh, so, so you can kind of just get into things. And I, I remember taking, I think as a junior, a course that was cross-listed for graduate students with Ernest Fortin, and it was called Nietzsche and Christianity. And that was the course, the first course where I kind of started to see that there was this sort of story about modernity and Fortin was famous for being like the Catholic Straussian. And so he, you know, at the time there was this weird search engine. It was just right around when BC was starting, but there was a search engine just for faculty publications. And so you could just like type a professor's name in and then it would yield the, this. And I found this fascinating. So I would actually read articles by Ernest Fortin and that, you know, try to talk to him. And he was kind of standoffish and this sort of odd, odd guy and um, didn't have too much time for me. But he would say things like, well, you, you should read this. And, and so, you know, he told me to read Alan Bloom's Closing of the American Mind. And I read that, I think, the summer after my junior year. And that was probably the most influential book on me that I've ever read in the sense that I read it at a time when I didn't 
know a lot, but really wanted to understand things. And the book was written in a way where I could get most of it. And it sort of made me understand kind of what modernity was. And even though um, his answers to things weren't necessarily the, the answers that I came to myself, it was just um, very, very impactful. Um, but then in the theology department, when I talked to anybody else, I was like, oh, well, Alan Bloom says this. They just kind of looked at me cross-eyed. Um, <laughs> uh, and then it was like, maybe they don't think it's very cool that I, I like Ernest Fortin because um, he was, you know, the sort of lone conservative in the ethics department at the time. And um, uh, yeah, sort of this... Um, um, you know, French figure who um, was um, uh, promoting this Straussian kind of worldview that a lot of people thought were incompatible with Christian claims. I mean, you know, even when I was at BC <clears throat> between 2008 and 2010, the, the, the Straussians were still hanging on. There was, they were still a, a cohort there. Um, they were, I think, almost exclusively in the, in the political science department or something. Um, but yeah, you know, we, we would, we would, sit across coffee shops from one another and not talk to each other um, while they read through their Nietzsche and, <laughs> and I had my big yeah. white volumes of Lonergan. Uh, but yeah, no, they, they're still, a, they're still hanging on there at BC. Um, no, go ahead, Ryan. Were you going to say something? Nope. Oh, okay. Sorry. My bad. <laughs> uh, it looked like you'd, you'd inhaled. Um, so what then, what uh, topics or uh, loci or, or questions were the ones you carried into graduate studies? Yeah, I mean, I would say um, I just took a broad range of courses. Um, they didn't have minors in the college back then, but I would have I would majored in history and in theology, and I would have had a minor in philosophy. Um, and so, I mean, I took Peter Crave's course on C.S. Lewis, realized that style of thinking was not for me. Um, and the fortunate thing that kind of, in a way, sort of made me a graduate student was between my junior and senior years, I realized maybe I can be an academic. And I started to get really into German stuff with you know, Nietzsche and Heidegger. And I took a great course on, on sort of Third Reich history with a legendary professor in the history department. And... So I went to the chair of the department at the time, Donald Dietrich, and the, the odd thing about me is that I was totally unintellectual in, in high school, not very interested in books, but I had taken German since seventh grade, and I did a gap year before college. So I lived with a German family and came back from that year, you know, speaking fluent German, being able to read German. And so when I realized German was an important research language, I went to this depart department chair, Donald Dietrich, and said, hey, I'm going to be around over the summer. If there's any, I have a job like shelving books in the library. Um, I can shelve them faster than they turn them in. So if there's any kind of research thing that I could do, um, I'd be happy to do it. And he said, well, I'm working on this thing on sort of modernism and the connection between that and the Catholic Tübingen school. And so I'm going to just print out a list of sort of subject searches, names. Um, yeah. And, and so basically through that project, he also said, you're going to be a senior why don't you think of doing a senior of the or a scholar of the college thesis, which anybody could do. You didn't need to be in an honors program to do. And it was like a nine credit thesis that you would uh, do under supervision and whatever. And so I said, why don't you just find a topic for yourself? And so his searches were a lot of Catholic tubing in school. And then their journal had been published since 1819, so this year is the 200th year anniversary, and he wanted to know, kind of know whether things in that journal were on topics he was interested in. And so I ended up actually, and this is an insane thing to think about because it wasn't that long ago, but this was 1995. I ended up writing out by hand 
the tie the German titles from the Frock Tour of all the articles in this journal from 1819 and like the 1850s. And then I would just start, you know, flipping through and reading some of uh, some of them. And I just to, just to give your hand a rest. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I stumbled across this debate about whether Germans should establish a Catholic university. Mm. And as an undergraduate, I spent all kinds of time like going to lectures, whatever it was on, I'd go to a lecture because I just thought you were supposed to do this as an undergrad. I mean, me and my roommates, we'd all go to these lectures together. Some of them would be good and some would be um, very, very confusing, but uh, on all kinds of controversial topics. And there was always stuff on Catholic university, whatever, what makes, what makes a university a university, um, what makes a Jesuit university. So that oh, it's interesting. They're having this debate in Germany in the, in the 1860s, and so I wrote my scholar of the college thesis on Johannes Kuhn and this debate, and it was a nice opportunity to actually do primary text research in another language. And so I parlayed at the during that time. I also realized that Michael Himes had just moved from Notre Dame to BC. So he came there my junior year, but I didn't meet him until my senior year. And I took his class um, and it was very impactful for me. And um, yeah, and then he, I knew this was his research area and it was Don Dietrich's research area. And so I, thought, well, wow, this tubing school thing seems really great. Uh, Michael Himes is this incredibly dynamic preacher, teacher, theologian, um, and um, kind of a Pied Piper. And so I got, you know, I met him right before he became a legendary figure um, who, uh, whose classes would have 300 undergraduates in them. And um, yeah, and he agreed to like, write me letters to do a Fulbright and tubing in. And then I went there after undergraduate and with the idea of sort of carrying out some sort of research on the Catholic tubing in school. Um, so uh, that's a long way of getting to some of your answer. Um, but tell no, me, that's, tell that's me what terrific. you know now. Yeah. No, no, that's great. Um, I mean, that's remarkable that you, you both uh, got that opportunity as an undergraduate and saw that it was an opportunity <laughs> um, is really is really something. Um, so and it's you, nice because now, like, we all have this quiet sense of shame about all the things we didn't do in our undergrad. Like, oh, I didn't spend my time like hand writing like all of the art, German articles like from something. Uh, what, what did I do? I mean, I, I just like. I went skiing. I, mean. I spent my senior year like slowly having an emotional breakdown. It was great. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had those too, but in between those, I was, you know. Yeah, in the <laughs> library. Good for you. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so, so you, you go and you do, uh, you do a Fulbright in, uh, in Germany. And what did you end up working on while you were, when you were there? Nothing really. Um, I awesome. mean, I just simply took classes. Okay. So I, um, yeah, I mean, there was nothing like, what's the point of writing a research project when you're 23 years old? You know, it just doesn't make any sense. Like you don't know anything. So yeah. So I ended up taking um, uh, classes and Peter Hunerman, who is, uh, you know, an incredible scholar, theologian, um, <laughs> very knowledgeable of the Tubingen School, had just come back from a conference at BC, you know, right when I came over to Germany, he was over there, and then their semester starts later, and it was a conference on the something, uh, I guess the 200th anniversary of Johann Adam Muller's birth. So he was there with all the big Tubingen people, and then he gave a seminar on the Tubingen School that fall. Um, so I took his seminar and that was, you know, a wonderful introduction to more of the figures. And so let um, me, let me actually, let, let me stop you there. Cause, cause for, for our listeners who, who might not know, um, can you give a, a, a precy on the tubing in school? 
Yeah, so just basically um, uh, a group of theologians on the faculty or students who then became members of the faculty who um, uh, were willing to engage modern questions, modern modes of thought to read Kant and Hegel and Schelling and instead of just um, retreating into the scholasticism in which they'd been trained or what was taught in a lot of seminaries, tried to kind of write in this new mode. Um, and, um, and so, but at the same time, they were, I would say, concerned with what now we call orthodoxy. So they were um, um, kind of in between um, certain uh, positions and stances that would come under extreme scrutiny. And sometimes they were right on the edge of that scrutiny. And, uh, but they basically, um, in that sense, I would say they're kind of like a proto-resourcement movement. So the way people think of like Delubac and Congar now, like these figures were sort of in that kind of situation. Um, 130 years earlier, and in fact had, as I kind of gave the talk at uh, the Vatican I conference she ran, um, they, they directly impacted those figures. Um, so that's, that's the Catholic Tübingen School, and that was um, a kind of mode of theology I wanted to do. Um, and so while I was there, the other Fulbrighter from America who was studying theology in Tübingen was John Betts. And so we became friends and he was ahead of me. He was writing a dissertation and he was talking about this guy called Hamann, this weird German pietist who was the first person to um, review Kant's critique and offer a substantial response to it, uh, a critique of pure reason, his meta-critique of pure reason, and then he was saying, well, you need to study with Oswald Bayer, and he's this great interpreter. And so I took classes with Oswald Bayer, I took his theological anthropology, I took a seminar on Hamann, and I mean, the great thing was that we just had a lot of time over there. And so I would have lunch with John Betts every day and we would like, it would be like an hour and a half lunch and just sort of, I learned a ton of theology from him. And he was also talking at the time like, oh, I have this genius friend who's finishing his dissertation with me. He's going to change American theology. His name is David Hart. <laughs> and so, you know, it was a lot of, I was actually like studying in John Betts's room for, I don't know why, um, in his, uh, uh, you know, where he was living, which was closer to town than where I lived. And then like the phone rang and I picked it up and it was David Hart. And I was like, oh yeah, I've been, you know, hearing about chapter three of your dissertation. And, uh, uh, and so, um, and then he was talking about how Milbank's theology and social theory was really going to, it was changing theology. And I hadn't heard of this at BC. And so Milbank came and gave a lecture at Tübingen and we hung out with him and he offended all the Germans. And you know, <laughs> So I, he gave a talk on Hamann and Jacobi, which was then later, I think, in one of the radical orthodoxy volumes. And I remember like having a photocopy of the text that he sent in like via fax, like there were no email attachments in 1997. And so I remember, you know, reading this several times and thinking how cool it was. It was just this postmodern cool thing and re and like bringing it back. So as the year finished, I went back and BC foolishly let me into a PhD program, having just one year of coursework in, in, uh, in Germany. As a graduate student. Um, and so I came back with this like photocopied thing and I was like, have you guys heard of this Milbank fellow? This is his recent lecture. And actually some of them had been reading Milbank. And I remember like giving it to Michael Himes or something. And he just gave it to me like the next time I saw him and he said, John Milbank's gone mad. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so I, um, felt very caught between, in a way, sort of some postmodern impulses I'd had, I'd kind of picked up on from reading Haman and Milbank and, um, and, you know, 
I think I read theology and social theory like the summer when I got back from Germany. And again, there's no Amazon at this point. So I'm like, mom, all I want you to do is order me this book. And you know, it's like, it's not, it's, it's not in our local bookstore where the intellectuals buy books. It's like, yeah, you got to find a way to get it for me. I need to read it this summer. So, um, I mean, I'd say theology and social theory was probably then the, the most impactful book. And that, I read it at a time when I was trying to figure things out and it, it opened up a world to me. Um, and so it came with those, those sort of impulses back to BC and um, yeah, and was in a way a kind of liminal graduate student in that the three big people in systematic theology were of course my, uh, Michael Buckley, Fred Lawrence, um, and then um, Matt Lamb, obviously, although he was kind of borderline historical. And then I, I guess Michael Himes as well. So Buckley, Himes, Lawrence, and then, and then I just never felt at home with any of those people. And that I didn't think exactly the way they did. And they didn't like all the things that I liked. Um, and so, um, yeah, I found myself kind of in between, not properly anyone's students. And the person who seemed most comfortable with that was actually Fred Lawrence, mm. who has almost this kind of missionary zeal for Lonergan, which in a way is, is kind of narrow. It's just an intense focus on this figure. But then he reads everything else and reads it charitably and knows how to bring it into conversation with these other figures. And so, um, yeah, he was not my director, but he ended up being the most helpful person and that he read the dissertation most closely. And, um, and so after graduate school, like I, as I continued to think about things, you know, I kind of continued reading what he had wrote. And when I was working on stuff, I actually, read the first chapter of his, you know, legendary dissertation that's never been published. <laughs> and it kind of just ch changed the way I thought about things. And I re that was like four years after my dissertation defense. And that was when I finally understood everything that he was critiquing me about. <laughs> and um, yeah, and so um, I had taken Heflin's seminar on Lonergan's method, and I had taken several classes with Fred. Um, but maybe actually only two, um, but, um, he was, um, you know, in a way, probably the most formative person as in terms of a model that I looked up to who read really widely and, uh, uh, at the same time had kind of a way to understand the, the benefits and the, the short shortcomings of different authors. For for people who don't know, you know, uh, when Fred was writing that dissertation, he was he was traveling between Gottimer lectures and Lonergan lectures that he would go back and forth and back and forth. Um, and he ultimately was instrumental in bringing Gottimer to, to Boston College um, and Lonergan too. <clears throat> but uh, but yeah, that uh, that dissertation I've I, I've I've read that chapter you're talking about and poked through some of the rest of it, and it's really it's really something and. Um, you know, I, I don't know how well, how well known Fred is outside of, uh, Lonergan circles or maybe Gadamer circles, but, but the conversation he's, he's been able to, um, generate sort of in his, in his own writings and, and among his students is really, is really something is, I think in some ways it's sort of the undiscovered gem of, of Boston college theology in the last two decades. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say even further than that. And he himself, I hadn't realized until I'd read his sort of autobiographical in introduction to the collected essays that Randy Rosenberg and Kevin Vanderskill put together. But Fred himself um, was uh, extremely influenced by um, Ernest Fortin. And he like just through getting to know Fort and that's how he got into all the Straussian stuff. And I always took that as a great model of collegiality of basically like 
yeah, you're here and I'm here, so I should understand your world. Um, and that's when he kind of developed his snows for political theology. So great. Um, <clears throat> so uh, you have also uh, Ryan and I, when we were both in Milwaukee, drove down to St. Louis to 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 come visit you, but also to attend a conference you organized. Um, what was that? Three summers ago now, Ryan? Yeah, summer of 2015. Um, I don't think either of us had children at the time, so <laughs> made it a little easier to to abscond. Sure, um, sure did. But uh, can can you tell us a little bit about um, your interest in work in Girard? Yeah. So the funny thing is that Robert Daly was at BC at the time uh, I was there, and you know he he was uh, one of the big Catholic Girardians in early on Girard. And he organized the 2000 cover conference at BC. And I remember telling, you know, sent this out to the grad students. Um, uh, yeah, you know, if you want to help out with the conference, you know, all the big people will be there and Rene Girard will be there. And I hadn't really heard of Girard before. And I was like, well, it doesn't seem that interesting to me. So I went to none of it. Um, and yeah, Fred talked about Gerard some. Mark Miller was coming to BC right when I was leaving, and he had wanted to write a dissertation on Lonergan and Gerard because he got a job offer before the dissertation was done. He ended up kind of cutting out the second half and just having a Lonergan dissertation. But he kind of got me into it. And I remember when I came back to defend my dissertation, because I was living in Switzerland on a fellowship the last year, of my PhD work, I, um, you know, just went to a bookstore and maybe it was because I had talked to Mark Miller, but I picked up a copy of Icy Satan Fall Like Lightning and read that. And then I um, uh, was soon afterwards teaching uh, Heavy Load in Loyola, New Orleans, teaching new classes and there was a class on the books on sin that I think Vernon Gregson, the old Lonergadian, had originally yeah. um, uh, constructed this course. And so I asked him for old syllabi and whatever. And then um, Steve Duffy was there and he um, had, I think, taught the course, done a lot on evil. And he got me into Sebastian Moore. And so I then went back to I See Satan Fall Like Lightning and this his treatment of the Decalogue was something I regularly taught in that course. And then I realized Sebastian Moore was influenced by Girard in his legendary book, The Crucified Jesus is No Stranger. And every time I taught that book, it was actually like going on spiritual retreat or something. It was such, I found it such an intense book that, um, Every time I reread it, it was like have, going on retreat. And then I started reading more Gerard and I read Things Hidden. And, um, and then once I was just, it was almost providential. I was browsing the books at the AAR around 2005. And I saw a book by James Allison. And the title intrigued me, and the blurb on the back was by Sebastian Moore, and he also wrote the foreword to The Joy of Being Wrong, Original Sin Through Easter Eyes. And so I was like, oh, there's a like, dissertation by the Girard guy on, and Sebastian Moore is blurbing it. And so I read Allison, I read On Being Liked, and um, yeah, and then I just, I mean, I started to see in more complex ways how exactly um you know Girard could be applied theologically and I had this interest in sin or doctrine of original sin and also I mean I taught a lot of Lonergan in that class the chapters from bias on bias and insight um and so I just kind of was thinking I need to do something on Girard and so my original idea was to do something comparing Gerard and Schelling, one of the people I discussed in my dissertation on their attitudes towards myth and the relationship between myth and the gospel. So I had a summer research fellowship after I relocated to St. Louis University in 2008, the summer of 2008, to just pursue this question. 
And I couldn't really put the two together in a meaningful way, but I had read enough Girard and at St. Louis University, Brian Robinette was also working on Girard and he was my colleague in systematic theology. And so he had read more than I had of Girard at the time and was able to kind of put these things together. And so bringing it all to a close, when I read Closing of the American Mind, in 1990, or when 1993 or four, I was like, oh, this Alan Bloom character seems so cool and he's a professor at the University of Chicago or whatever. And then I realized, oh my gosh, he's dead. Um, and uh, Steve Pope told me, yeah, he, he died of AIDS, but don't tell her this for this. And so, um, uh, 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 so, um, then I was like, Gerard, you know, he's the guy. Um, and, uh, and so I just called his office in, in Stanford and it was like, he's, yeah, like, can I talk to you about this stuff? And um, I called like three or four times and emailed him and eventually he got back to me. And so I flew out uh, to see my family over Christmas break in, in Northern California. And um, yeah, Gerard was like, uh, yeah, come by, you know? And I was like, well, what's your schedule like? He's like, oh, whatever you want is fine. <laughs> and, uh, and it's just very chill. And I picked him up and he took me to, out to lunch. And then I went back to his house and he gave me a signed copy of um, the Clausewitz book. Wow. And we talked for like three hours. And then, you know, he said he would agree to do an interview with me. And so I kind of thought about the interview questions called back a few months later. He totally didn't remember ever agreed to this. And it was one of the last <laughs> interviews I did. Um, and he just, it was kind of like the canon needed to be closed. Um, and so, um, yeah, so I, I did record this interview with him. And then, you know, um, um, yeah. And, um, and so, but I was interested in him as an apologist. Basically, what's he doing how is he offering a defense of Christianity? And I was always interested in arguments, why people believe things, why they don't. I always had friends who were secular, non-religious, whatever. And yeah, and whether there were arguments, and I didn't want to believe in Christianity unless I thought it was true. And so I think that was basically the appeal of C.S. Lewis in high school. And that's why I wrote a dissertation kind of answering the enlightenment, which in a way, you know, took kind of a harder edge. And I think it took that edge because, you know, I met John Betts and sort of understood his sort of project of Haman as an answer to Kant and the enlightenment. And I read Milbank. And then, you know, I saw Girard as in a way to offering this apology for Christianity. Um, and I was interested in, in kind of fundamental theological questions. And I saw Girard kind of offering an opening to those questions that, um, yeah, just was something new and different and could get at things that older apologetics couldn't do. Mm, that's interesting. Today. Have I ever told you the story of uh, how I came to read theology and social theory for the first time? Have I ever told you this? No. Uh, I read it as an undergraduate uh, in R.J. Snell's, one of his philosophy classes. Uh, and the, the texts we read were After Virtue, Theology and Social Theory, and Method and Theology <laughs> in a philosophy class. And no less, the, the, the class in the in the course catalog was called Anglo-American philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of students were really in for a surprise in that one. Yeah. When there's very little curricular oversight, good things happen, but bad things can happen. Yeah. I had, it, I, I had good fortune, but. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, so you do, you've done all this work on a bunch of 19th century Germans who are like, oh, Hegel and Kant, let's figure them out. And then you end up jumping to um, Girard. And do you, have you done much with Recur? I did a little bit with Recur. So the first article I wrote did a lot with his stuff on hermeneutics of revelation. 
So I guess I'm just wondering, like, I mean, you've got like a bunch of 18th century Germans and now like kind of late 20th century French thinkers. Do you ever, I mean, is there much dialogue between them? Are they in just totally different worlds? Do you just kind of have a few silos of interest or do you see a lot of overlap in, in the way you think between the two groups? Yeah, I mean, you know, Girard, I find, um, changed how I thought about Christianity in a way that the other figures didn't. I mean, the other figures are basically kind of giving you the intellectual equipment you need to kind of make faith intelligible. Um, But Girard was, I guess, more sort of gut level involving the whole person and it's um you know books that read you so you read the bible and it reads you in a way um you read the confessions it reads you and that's what i felt with gerard and when i read gerard then you read everything else differently um you think about the world think about conversations friendships relationships everything kind of uh can be gathered up in this in the, in the way that would be true, like if you were like a Freudian and you kind of just discovered this. And, um, and so the trick for Girardians, I think, is to, instead of just using it as a tool of like social analysis or psychological analysis, uh, seeing these kind of triangles everywhere or like um, the guy in the sixth sense, you know, I, I see victims or something. Um, uh, you know, the I see dead people thing, um, is to actually kind of turn it in on yourself and see how you yourself are caught up in these kind of patterns. And yeah, I mean, one thing I'm interested in is rivalries in, in the 19th century. And so Muller and Bauer have this kind of famous ri- rivalry. And um, yeah, is it just a kind of mimetic escalation? Is does the does the fighting come from intense similarity um, that sort of couched as difference? And uh, and so, what's going on with confessional disputes between Catholics and Protestants? And yeah, I mean, I, I would say Gerard kind of gives me that uh, kind of insight into the nature of humans that, um, like, when I one of the last times I saw Michael Buckley in California, who's still alive, but very, very sort of immobilized um, uh, and in a wheelchair. You know, I asked him about the, the legendary fights or disagreements between Leo Strauss at the University of Chicago and his teacher at Chicago, Richard McKeon, who's the professor in the Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And, um, and so, uh, thanks for the fruit snack. Um, you may need to edit real quickly here. It's all right. We've got, we have a a toddler visitor in our podcast today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And what he said just to stuck with me, you know, I said, do you think that the disagreement between Strauss and McKeon was fundamentally about intellectual, you know, intellectual things? I mean, McKeon's retort to Strauss was, you know, Strauss reads between the lines, even, you know, when there's like, even when there are no lines or something like this. And um, he reads between the, behind the text, even, you know, at the expense of the text. So, hey, Emily. Um, and uh, not you, Siri. Uh, so, um, and he said, you know, oh, it's personal. It was, uh, it was everything's personal in these things. And that insight that, yeah, I mean, I think Michael Buckley, a kind of master of the Ignatian exercises and, uh, you know, a person who does this intensely heady theology, you know, it was just obvious to him that these intellectual powers at the University of Chicago who couldn't stand each other, their disagreement was more personal than intellectual. And so I think, um, yeah, I mean, I would say that Gerard definitely, um, you know, kind of affects how I read them. Although it's, it's not like anything they're doing, I've read and said, oh yeah, they have the Girardian inside. I mean, for the most part, they're not working on 
soteriological questions. Um, so I, you know, I felt liberated after writing the Girard stuff in the sense of like, I have nothing else to say about it. You know, now there may be other people come along understand Girard in a way that makes me change my mind or people who I disagree with and feel like I need to respond to or, you, you know, I mean, whenever I read novels, I always think like no one's done a Girardian interpretation of this. It needs to be done. But I don't really have a lot else to say. Um, whereas with 19th century figures, you know, there's just such a tremendous body of literature. There's so many interesting things that I didn't know about my dissertation so much that I'm still trying to figure out. Um, and so, um, yeah, I mean, I imagine I'll be doing a lot on 19th century figures and I don't, you know, I don't know what else I will do on Girard. Well, great. Um, I, I can't help but notice though that uh, there's some ligaments connecting all of this. Fred Lawrence, Sebastian Moore, Mark Miller, Ernan Gregson. So for all of the, uh, you know, common wisdom that, that sort of sees Lonergan as kind of siloed off, hermetically sealed from the rest of uh, what's going on in the intellectual universe. A lot of yours is all tied together in weird and serendipitous ways by people profoundly influenced by Lonergan. Yes. Yeah. No. And um, I'm, I mean, I, I remember talking at a Lonergan workshop about Girard with Gilles Mangeau and uh, Gilles was saying, you know, to understand Gerard, you have to realize it all started with literature. And I didn't even know that at the time. I mean, I, I just didn't even know that. And so like, yeah. And uh, um, uh, Fred obviously had his opinions about Gerard and Robert Doran's um, work on Gerard and even Charles Heflin wrote something on James Allison um, uh, pretty early. And yeah. And so I, I learned tremendously from Lonergan people. Jeremy Wilkins was one year behind me, um, and I learned a lot from him in graduate school. Um, and um, Mark Miller was obviously a very good friend, and uh, and so I regularly would read Lonergan after graduate school um, for other courses that I was doing, um, teaching. Like I taught Herbum in the fall, and. Um, and just, just the essays by Lonergan on certain things. And I haven't been to the workshop in a while, but I think I went, you know, two or three times after I had left Boston College. So um, I, yeah, I mean, Lonergan's been a continual intellectual companion and probably my closest, he and DeLubach would probably be my closest companions, you know, the past 15 years and um and in that sense um the lonergan people i think read gerard better than the baltazarians and the milbankians and the whatever you call the heart people the harshans um and uh and that i think that speaks very well to the lonergan crowd and that um yeah like they see there's something there and they have the tools to kind of understand it in a certain way and the sort of general spirit imbued in people like Bob Doran and, and uh, Fred Lawrence to read generously. And so I think they, um, yeah, I think the Lonergadians have done the best job of incorporating Girard into Catholic theology. Um, and when I was asked by Randy Rosenberg to write a review essay on Doran's book, kind of from a Girardian perspective, you know, that was a helpful exercise for me to kind of follow a really, really good systematic theologian. Um, and for me, Bob Doran is easily one of the best Catholic theologians in North America you know, top 10 or whatever, um, and uh, uh, currently alive. And so that, that was very helpful, um, for sure. Well, thanks, Grant. Um, so I asked you to do our treasures old and new for this episode. Um, so you're, you're, you have a heart out here in a little bit, because uh, you got kids you have to 
keep safe and organized. But but quickly, uh, what are your treasures old and new for us? Um, my new treasure here is this book by Zachary Purvis, Theology and the University in 19th Century Germany. So he basically, instead of, it's a fascinating dissertation they did with Oxford at, uh, under, under uh, Johannes Zakuber. And instead of doing figures or sort of subjects, he does a genre. And the genre is theological encyclopedia, which kind of started in the 18th century as a way to deal with the ex- sort of early modern explosion of knowledge and what it meant for, to do a theological encyclopedia. And he traces it also through sort of figures like Shelley and Schleiermacher and then um, uh, figures in the middle of the 19th century, sort of forgotten Lutheran figures. and. It's a first book out of his dissertation, and it's incredibly well done. Extremely, it's both well researched, extremely well written, tightly argued, not dissertation y. And yeah, I mean, it's one of the best books I've ever read on 19th century theology. Well, give, um, give us the title one more time Theology and the University in 19th Century Germany by Zachary Purvis, who's currently on a postdoc at the University of Wisconsin, Madison. Um, The old treasure, just because I've been working on it, as you know from my Twitter feed, is Johann Sebastian Dreis' brief introduction to the study of theology, also experienced its 200th anniversary. And it is his effort at theological encyclopedia. And it's subtle brilliance. Um, This is about the fourth or fifth time that I've read it because I'm writing a little article on it. It's subtle brilliance is just kind of just hit me harder this time than it had before in the way he is trying to take Catholic theology as it had been done and to think about sort of reorganizing it in a way that it would be kind of in the university, but to sort of firmly plant in the ground the kind of historical ineradicability, the sort of positivity of Christianity as an event, a series of events, a movement in history. Um, And this is really the first book where you get a Catholic talking about doctrinal development, you know, 25 years before Newman. You get him doing incredibly interesting hermeneutical things. You get him sort of appropriating Schleiermacher's idea of theological genius within a Catholic, ecclesial, deeply ecclesial context. And uh, yeah, and it's it's a very good translation done by Michael Himes. Um, And it's a book that I would say easily is a top 10 book of Catholic fundamental theology in the past 200 years easily and everyone should read it who's a graduate student in a catholic theology program and uh and it's not that hard and it's not that long um and so um right, can you give us a give us the title one more time brief introduction to the study of theology by johann sebastian dry d-r-e-y awesome well thank you uh those are great um, you should, uh, you should start writing down these top 10 lists, by the way. I feel yeah, like no, I, Kaplan's I, listicles of, of. Yeah. Yeah. Now that there's Twitter, I kind of feel like, um, Twitter is nice because Facebook, you know, maybe 15% of the people get my humor. <laughs> so I couldn't ever write anything that I thought was funny because it was just then just kind of lead to more confusion than unconfusion. And so. I, uh, yeah, just became kind of frustrated because I wanted to was really just sort of argue with people and be ironic and snarky, you know, and say things that I think are true, but I just found the medium no longer conducive to that at a certain point. And so Twitter, maybe, you know, 40% of people can kind of, uh, you know, sort of 
appreciate the, the snark or whatever. And, uh, and that's a ratio I can definitely live with and be happy with. Um, so, um, yeah, but the, I used to have in my office, you know, a little like cocktail napkin stuff, like top 10 theologians and, you know, top, top five, like rising Catholic theologians. And, and, uh, yeah. And, um, you know, um, lists, everybody loves lists. I'm telling you, man, it's a, it's a, it's a, a one-way train to, to notoriety here for you. Throw a few TVs off the roof and you're a new Dave Letterman. Yeah. And once, uh, <laughs> you know, once Rusty Reno stopped r- uh, ranking graduate schools, there's a <laughs> <laughs> Right. That's Perfect an, note opening. That's right. There's an opening just for you. All right. Well, uh, thanks, Grant, for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Um, you can send us an email if you want, systematicallypodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at systematicpod. If you want to contribute Treasures Old and New, you can do so either by that Gmail address or uh, you can drop them in the DMs at systematicpod. Uh, once again, we have a Patreon. If you want to help make the show financially sustainable, that would be really amazing. We'd really, really appreciate it. We have a few folks doing it already, and we are so just eminently grateful. Uh, that's patreon.com slash systematically. Our intro and outro music, as always, is track 14 off of Ghost 2 by Nine Inch Nails. And uh, as you go into this week, be attentive.